You tuned in to the Policy Talks podcast by Bharti Institute of Public Policy from the Indian School of Business. We hope to understand the personalities behind policies and demystify the complex policy making labyrinth. Every Tuesday, we speak to seasoned stalwarts and promising young legislative fellows who have made indelible marks in shaping the Indian policy landscape. Welcome to the public policy series uh, in which we are taking up issues of public concern. Today we are focusing on the issue of climate change and with me is a very distinguished leader and the professional Dr. O.P. Agrawal. Welcome Dr. Agrawal to the series that we are starting with. Let me start with it as we are talking to COP26, especially the India's commitment in Glasgow. What do you think what are the strategies that you would outline for India in implementing the commitment that we made at Glasgow? Thanks. Thanks very much, Anjal. Delight to be here. Always a delight to be here. And uh, coming to your question, I think it's time we began thinking of going beyond negotiations. You know, if we don't keep track of the extent to which these negotiations are getting implemented, we'll be running away on one side, but not conscious of what really is happening. You can commit the moon, but if you don't get anywhere near the moon, what's the point of making those commitments? That's why I feel very strongly that today the time has come to look beyond that negotiating table, getting beyond what people have signed up to, to how are they performing in terms of delivering on them. And I don't mean performing in terms of whether they're doing it or not, but much more in terms of are they able to do it? What is the problem they are facing? The world is talking about finance. I think finance is definitely a problem which commitments have been made but not contributed. But I think an even bigger problem is the lack of capacity. And I think even worse is the fact that at one stage we've run away so far on this whole climate discussion that we've created a whole vocabulary, a whole club, which only that club understands. The people who are responsible for implementing that have no clue what it is. So this is what I fear is a big way. We'll go on making commitments. We'll keep having cops. But things are not getting done here because people don't know how to do them. Yeah, that's a very interesting question and I'll come to that part in terms of what can we do. But uh, in terms of the sectors, you see the kind of a different sectors that we are operating in. What do you think the most crucial sector that we have where we need most of the intervention? I would say three in a big way. Three in a big way. One, of course, is energy. Mm -hmm. Now, it is time we have to look at moving away from fossil fuels towards cleaner energy sources. And you're aware that everyone is looking at electrification as a possible, you know, moving away from fossil fuels. But then even on electrification, moving away from using fossil fuels to generate electricity, but using more of natural resources to generate electricity. That's why this whole push towards renewable energy, towards solar energy, towards nuclear energy to some extent, I think this is where a big investment needs to be made, a lot needs to be thought of. But technologically, these sectors have problems. Particularly if you're looking at solar and uh, wind, you don't have the sun around the day. You don't have wind 24-7. So the assessments are that you're really getting these for only about 30% of the time. The question is, what do we do with demand outside of that 30%? And this is where the big conversation around storage. Electricity we never thought could be stored. Water could be stored, but what electricity can't. 
and batteries are becoming an important thing. So energy is going to be a very important area that we need to focus on. I think the other important area we need to focus on is transport. And transport again is not just urban transport, particularly in the Indian context, I would say even intercity freight is a big area. You know, a lot of the emissions are coming from road transport and within that coming from intercity freight system. So making, you know, thinking of that as a second sector. And I can go into more details on this if you like, but for the moment, let's. The third sector I would like to think of is really agriculture and land use. I think this is yet another area where a lot of attention needs to be paid. These are the three that I would say. Within this, urban becomes extremely important because most of the emissions growth that we are likely to see in future, about 60 to 65 percent or more of the emissions growth in the years ahead will be from the urban sector. And actions are possible in the urban sector to bring that down. So let's say these four sectors, you know, energy, transport, urban and agriculture and land use. Interesting. Uh, but you see the India's commitment uh, in the last COP that we had is that we are going to go net zero by 2070. Uh, do you think it's a reasonable uh, target for us or you think that we could have done slightly earlier or do you need more time to do that? See, this is uh, <laughs> linking up to what I said right in the beginning. Sure. You can make commitments. Sure. You can make any amount of commitment. We could have said we'll do it tomorrow. Mm. But is that reasonable? So I actually don't even think too much about 2070. Hmm. I think a more interesting commitment that India has made is for 2030. What are we going to bring down by 2030? To my, in my view, 2050 is too far away. The leaders of today are not going to be there in 2050. So to commit for someone else's time, are you really credible? But a commitment for 2030, which is just eight years from now, is something where you can question, what have you done? I think there's a lot more credibility with India's commitments than the rest of the world's commitments because there's a commitment for 2030. So that brings me to an important point that the, you know, the way in which we are delivering services, the architecture of service delivery is in terms of the way in the ministry is organized. And um, the, uh, you know, climate change issues are so integrated in nature. Uh, do you think that we need a separate ministry for climate change? It's difficult. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, my answer to that is yes and no. Mm -hmm. Yes, because we need one coordinated entity to be getting into international discussions. So when you have these conference of parties and various other international discussions, you can't have every ministry going there. You will need a Ministry of Environment to do that, bring that message back and pass it on to the rest of the country. But when it comes to implementation on the ground, I think climate has to be embedded into every action that we take. Climate cannot be managed by a separate ministry because that, to my mind, will not work. You know, every ministry which has a responsibility or every single agency that has a responsibility for doing anything must have climate embedded into their thinking. Just like you like gender, you don't have a separate ministry for gender. Gender must be embedded into everything that we do. I think that's where we need to look at. But don't you think there's a thought leadership needed uh, so that this framework, which is the embeddedness framework that we have, should also be uh, you know, guided by a certain framework, which nobody has expertise at this moment that we look at because it is so dissipated in different ministries. So this is where the thought, I mean, honestly, I feel we should start thinking more about ground implementation than thought leadership. Mm -hmm. 
but the thought leadership should be able to bring down what has to be done by each agency to achieve that target. Okay. Let the me do current a thought call. leadership is not doing that. <laughs> That's it's left at high level modeling, which means nothing to the people on the ground. That's a good point. So if I am, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm in an area which is uh, flood ridden or, you know, I just had a flood and I'm drowned in the area, which ministry should I go to is my question. And that's why so we go to the local city. Okay. That's the one that should be doing it. That's where the coordination happens. The ministries don't coordinate. Exactly. It must go to that ministry. I don't think a separate ministry for implementing climate change is a good idea at all. I think it will be a disaster. Mm -hmm. Nothing will happen. That's but it should be done at the local city. Mm -hmm. The local city should be capacitated to understand what will cause problems. They, once they understand, they should do the right actions. Very interesting. Okay, so as we speak now, uh, as I said, this COP27 is already started. Uh, what is your feeling about what will come out after COP27? I know you're not a great fan of these big I'm COPs. I'm not a fan <laughs> of COP at all. Uh, I think they've done their bit. Yeah. And these annual COPs now should look at how have we progressed on whatever we want to do, whatever we've committed to do? I think that will be strength. Where's the money that has been committed? True. Have we invested in building capability to implement on the ground? Mm -hmm. I think asking for more ambitious commitments is frankly, to give you an analogy, mm -hmm. someone trying to guide a blind man past a congested street. Somewhere along the way, he's left that blind man's hand and he's rushed ahead and gone ahead, not even looked back to see where that blind man is. Mm -hmm. We're really in that situation. You know, at the negotiating table, you want more and more ambitious commitments, but we're not able to deliver on what has been committed. It's not just India, it's the rest of the world. Where are we? Where's the money that you've been committing to give? So I think that is what cops should start looking at. You know, look back and see where that blind man is. Can we help him come up to where we are rather than just scaling up on commitments? True. And, you know, the whole issue of uh, the adaptation finance, which has been promised, but it's not coming. And, uh, and I mean, India is still, uh, I would say that it, we are still in a level that we can manage our show, keeping in all the climate change catastrophes that we're facing. But I guess the other countries like Bhutan, Nepal, you know, our neighboring countries, Bangladesh, Pakistan, you know, so these countries have been dealing under floods and, you know, other climate change related catastrophes that I say, see. So how do you see that the India's role in, uh, you know, as a leader, thought leader in South Asia, wh what do you think that we can also bring in here for our region, uh, our neighbors, our people? I think India, India can play a very important role in a number of actions that are needed to meet the climate goal. Let me give you a simple example. Let's look at electric mobility. Clearly, electric vehicles are what the world is talking of as the direction to take when it comes to transport systems. When we try to learn from the West, the whole issue is about electrification of cars. What percentage of the cars have you electrified? That's not the solution for India or even a lot of the developing world. I argue that let's not look at what percentage of the vehicles have been electrified. What is important is what percentage of the vehicle miles have been electrified. Mm -hmm. But that's what's going to give us benefits. Mm -hmm. If my car, which is used for only 10 kilometers a day, gets electrified, is no big benefit. Mm -hmm. But a bus that is used for 200 kilometers in a day getting electrified is where the benefit is. And in a country like India, where you have public transport, where you have two wheelers, mm -hmm. these are the things that we are looking for electrification. Personal cars are too small to matter. Now, this is an area where India can take leadership for South Asia, Southeast Asia, 
and the developing world. You know, coming up with technologies for charging, for swapping, a whole lot of things associated with electric mobility for the kind of vehicle that we need to focus on. So that's interesting because, uh, I mean, we know that there are some indigenous technologies also being developing. We still a long way to go in terms of the electric mobility, as you're saying, and that's something that you also personally very passionate about and focus a lot on urban transport at concern. Though we still have a larger dependence on coal, the electricity, the source of electricity is still coal. So how do you look at this dilemma? Because the electricity driven vehicle is still dependent on coal, uh, not much on renewable resources. Let me answer that. That is, you see, uh, Coal is still only about 60%, it's not 100% of electricity. 60% of electricity is coming from coal. And the national policies are moving towards a greater share of renewables in the total electricity mix. So the direction is right, right? We don't want to wait till we are 100% clean electricity before going to electric vehicles. Because then we'll be waiting too long. The second thing is, if you look at a lot of coal power plants, the coal is already burning, but we have electricity generated at off-peak times which is not getting used. Now, if we can have pricing mechanisms which encourage charging in off-peak, it's with the same emissions that you are also using off-peak power towards charging your vehicle. So, it's something where we need to come in with policies around time-of-day metering, time-of-day pricing for electricity. I won't say it will remove the problem, but at least it will not enlarge the problem. Yeah. In your vision, because you've been also focusing on energy and transport, next 20, 30 years, when do we get to see kind of complete shift from fossil fuel uh, energy-based uh, transport to uh, uh, you know alternate transport system? You see, with current technologies, I can tell you what current technologies can do and what are some of the technologies which are coming up, which are not mature enough for commercial use, but which can take care of the rest in the transport sector particularly. I think with current technologies, electric vehicles are best suited to meet urban and suburban needs, short distance needs, because the charging time and the range is such that you can't look at a 500 kilometer distance being traveled by a truck, for example. But the other interesting thing that is coming up is hydrogen. Hydrogen is already being used, but the way hydrogen is produced today does lead to emissions, because today's hydrogen production is much more through what's called uh, methane reformation. So you have steam passed through methane. Methane is a fossil fuel. So you're generating what's called gray hydrogen. So it's not absolutely clean hydrogen. But hydrogen is not being used as a transportation fuel as of now because of certain problems in storage and transportation. It's, it's very volatile, it's very risky. But research is going into two directions. One, making hydrogen safe for storage and transportation. Second, looking at ways of producing green hydrogen. That means hydrogen produced from electrolysis mm. and that electricity being a clean source of electricity. So once green hydrogen comes up, I think that can replace long distance fuel mm. with the... But there's another thing that can happen in transport. You know, it's not just about the fuel that we use, but a shift in modes, moving from road to rail mm. or moving from air to rail I think these are, again, things that will bring in cleaner technologies. What I see happening is, for the Indian Railways, for example, they are building dedicated freight corridors. They're also building high-speed rail corridors. Now, these by themselves would have a limited impact unless we can bring in policies whereby road transport shifts to dedicated freight corridors and short-haul flights shift to high-speed rail. 
this will bring about a much bigger benefit than merely building these two systems. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, our Honorable Prime Minister has recently launched uh, the Lifestyle for the Environment program, which is very ambitious and also very innovative, I would say. Can you just tell us a little bit more about this and what is the challenges that you think is implementation of this? So life, I think, is, is something, uh, you know, what, what the Prime Minister talked about is adopting a lifestyle that is friendly to the environment. Mm. Essentially, what he's talking about is Let's not be wasteful in the use of natural resources. And that has been our traditional Indian culture. You know, we don't throw things away. Yeah. Traditional thing, most housewives will even keep a paper cup for possible later use. Our traditional culture is recycling. We don't throw things away, we recycle. I think today with, you know, economic activities or economic status going up, people have started using Western lifestyles in many ways, yeah. where it's use and dispose. Then there are many other things that, uh, you know, I think one example where someone told me about what the Prime Minister had apparently said somewhere is that to get their morning exercise, people use a car to go to a gym, climb up an elevator to go to a certain floor and use an electrically driven treadmill to do their morning walk. Sure. Whereas there is a beautiful park next door which you can walk to and walk there and get your morning exercise, perhaps healthier. Mm -hmm. So I think these are certain lifestyles. There are many, there are many examples of this nature, certain lifestyles that we can adopt mm -hmm. to really bring down the emissions. Mm -hmm. So I think this is India's message or India's leadership in saying that it's not just about cutting use of energy, but adopting lifestyles that help you cut that. Mm -hmm. Let's not get into wasteful use of energy. I think it's a very powerful message. Yeah, you have uh, you know, initiated this LCCM program, the Leadership in Climate Change Management program, which is a very ambitious, I would say, of uh, you know, program to capacity strengthening of urban managers, city managers, as we call it. Tell us a little bit more about the program. But before that, also tell us how did you think about this? How did the conceptualization of this came forward? And what is the end goal that you are visualizing? So the, let me start with the end goal. The end goal is what I said right in the beginning. True that we should build up capability to deliver on our commitments. Mm. You know, I, I don't think it makes sense to make commitments and not have the capacity to deliver on them. And as I said, we really don't have an understanding of what climate means and what actions will lead to climate benefits mm. at the ground level, where people have to really do the things. Sure. So this is where I came up with the idea of uh, creating a program that will help to create leaders at the ground level our initial target is to create about 5,000 people as a pool and in the hope that these 5,000 will become a nucleus for more to come up with them as the fulcrum. That was really the idea. What we also kept in mind is that people at that level, the way they like to learn is very different from the way students in a classroom would learn. You know, these are mid-career people and uh, they won't listen to lectures for too long. So what they prefer to do is learn by doing, learn by talking to each other, learning by experience from each other. That's why this uh, design of this has been a little difficult. You know, how do you design a program like this which enables learning by doing? That's really uh, where uh, well, the organization that I used to work with uh, till recently uh, has taken the leadership in coming. I'm glad that ISB is a partner with us. We really value that partnership and uh, We've done one round of it, but like any new program of this nature, I'm not surprised that the first one has not been as good as I thought it would be, but that's the way you learn. 
that's the way we learn and I'm sure that this will go ahead uh, much better. Let me end this uh, program with asking a question. You have recently become a grandfather and uh, how do you see the future of your grandchild 20 years, 25 years from now? What is the world that you will be living in for him or her to uh, and, and also to young people? What are the message that you have? So two questions. <laughs> I think the biggest message I would give is the planet is threatened and uh, maybe we've created the problem but you have to sort it out. Be conscious about it. And I'm really happy that the younger generation is taking it up so strongly because they realize that the planet for them is under threat. So I think what we should all leave behind is something which is a safer world for them. And if part of my passion is really coming out to the fact that I must leave a better world for them to live in. I'm sure that's an interesting conversation, uh, Dr. O.P. Agrawal. It is wonderful to have you on our show. And uh, we look forward to your thought leadership as we go along. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, so Thank you so much. Thank you so much.